This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Traditionally, when someone takes their own life, their obituary doesn't mention suicide as the cause of death. But when their teenage son Robbie killed himself just last month, Kari and Jason Eckert made a different decision. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to read just a few lines from Robbie's obituary in October. It is with great sadness that we announce the untimely death of our son, Robbie D. Eckert. Robbie was 15 years old and a sophomore at Lakewood High School. He was a great student. Robbie could typically be found at home, in the pool, or on the courts playing. Despite his gift of bringing love and joy to others, Robbie was suffering in the darkness, battling privately with incredible pain. He succumbed to the silent illness of depression and took his own life this past Thursday. Kari, tell us just a bit more about your son. There's two things that probably hurt the most as his mom that I keep reflecting on. And one, his wit. Robbie was had great sense of humor from a very young age. When he was younger, it kind of caused a little bit of problems because he was just very mature. And But it was fun, and I miss that daily. And I, I think it explains a lot about his character. And secondly... Robbie was incredibly empathetic. He was able to put himself in other people's shoes all the time he showed that to us. And unfortunately, I think he wasn't able to take care of himself. And as a mother, that's a tough one. But those are two characteristics that I hold on to, and they do bring me hope. Jason, when I think of someone who's empathetic, I think of someone who might take on a lot of the world's pain and maybe not know what to do with it. Do you think that was true of Robbie? I think that very much was true. We've heard a number of stories um, since his death from people reaching out to us of how he had helped others, um, whether it was in grade school with befriending kids that were alone or isolated all the way through high school. And um, he he didn't really pay attention to social classes or statuses or cliques. And if somebody needed to talk or needed help. He, I mean, he seemed to be there all the time. Kari, you said that his wit would sometimes get him into a little bit of trouble. What do you mean by that? That's more when he was younger. Uh-huh. He was able, His it was just mature and adults connected with him, but sometimes it was just inappropriate for his age. So at 15 and a half, it was perfect. But when he was eight years old, it was like, uh-oh, what's coming out of his mouth? Out of the words of babes. Uh, I, I just want to say the obituary goes on to offer resources for others suffering from depression, and we've shared these same resources at CPR.org. Shortly before Robbie took his life, two seniors died by suicide not far away at Arapahoe High School. In August, there was the nine-year-old in Denver who died by suicide. There have been many others this year, and Colorado has among the highest suicide rates in the country. And just one more statistic— Suicide now kills more young people than car accidents in Colorado. Uh, Jason, many families choose not to mention that their loved one died by suicide in an obituary. How deliberate was your decision? And take us into how you made it. Well, I can't say that there was a tremendous amount of thought about uh, what happens after um, I was writing the obituary on that Saturday morning, but Kari and I were sitting at the the kitchen table, and um, we had just gotten home from picking up her daughter from Boston and bringing her home. And 
um, I, it was never a question in our mind. I mean, I, kids are incredibly intelligent. What, what were we going to say? He just suddenly passed away for no apparent reason. And, um, in hindsight, I'm, I'm glad we were as transparent as we are because the, the silence around this whole topic is deafening. And I think that through broader awareness and broader conversation with parents and kids, we can start to change this dynamic. Um, that certainly wasn't the intention that morning when, when we wrote that. We were trying to figure out what to tell the school and um, our close friends and family and work. And transparency and honesty seemed like the the best approach. And I think in the past month, that's just reinforced that. What would you add, Kari? Just honesty. There's That's always been a value in our family and with Robbie. And there, that's what happened. He committed suicide. There are no other, there's no other way to explain it. Jason said that uh, a lot of what you have experienced um, has uh, indicated to you that you made the right decision in revealing this in the obituary. What experiences have you had that make you think, I'm glad we made this choice? The number of young adults that we've been able to connect with um, through our efforts and through being honest, um, it's overwhelming how many kids are saying, I'm stressed out. I struggle. I'm being treated for depression. Um, I've thought about suicide. I mean, the honesty that kids are willing to share is very eye-opening. I would say we've also heard from a ton of parents since we um, were on Nine News, I don't know whenever that was, a few weeks ago, about people for the first time actually starting to have those conversations as a family where they never had before. And um, I just, you know, I we've talked about this. I, I'm pretty convinced that if we would have had these types of conversations with Robbie, maybe this wouldn't have happened or maybe we would have found something that we we didn't know, but we didn't. But that doesn't mean we can't help and encourage other people to do the thing that maybe we should have. Jason, you'd just been to a parent-teacher conference, and when you got home and found Robbie, I believe that was that was the same day. Yes, and he just had a great report. It was at school amazing that uh, his teachers. I mean, he was a, a fantastic student. He loved math. Um, but the fun stories were um, his teachers relaying how in math and chemistry and a few other subjects, how he was always helping other students with their homework or the problems at hand. And he struggled with Spanish, but he was working through that. And um, He'd been talking about college, getting his driver's license. He was looking forward to things. He was planning things out. He There wasn't indications that he was struggling with something silently to us or to his friends. And that'll always be a big mystery. It's not something that we can, it is something that we look back at. We're human, but we have to move forward and we have to have this conversation. Parents need to have this conversation. When Jason said um, this was the kind of conversation we could have had with Robbie, you, you closed your eyes, Kari. It seemed like that was especially hard for you to hear. 
oh, it's very hard. It's the truth. Sometimes I think about what we're doing right now. I'm like, oh, if Robbie could have had that opportunity, we probably wouldn't, we wouldn't be sitting here. I, I hope that's the change that we can create as a mom, as parents. That's tough, but let's be honest and let's not skip over suicide and tough conversations and letting our kids know it's okay. You might not be okay. Let's be very specific about what you want to encourage. So you've said conversations. So we, what, yeah, what is it you'd change in how a family? Well, I think there's there's a couple dynamics. The first starts just as a family or adults and kids. If it's an extended family or a pastor or a coach or a teacher, if if people are struggling, just initiate the conversation because it's amazing once you do that how people open up. And I honestly believe that there's hope if you can start to have the dialogue. With our teen group, That we, um, we have teens meeting um, every other week, and they're really helping us try to frame what the, the real issue is. There, there's a tremendous amount of resources available once you raise your hand and you say, I need help. But for whatever reason, it it's not resonating with, with kids today. They're not reaching out. They feel like this is something that they have to battle privately and in silence. And that's just not true. So we need to change the fundamental message, and they need to help us create that. You have formed a group called Robbie's Hope. I actually understand that you named that before you knew Hope was an acronym for a saying used by mental health professionals. What did you learn that acronym to mean, Kari? Hold on, pain ends. Hold on, pain ends. It won't always be this bad, in other words. It's, I don't think youth today have, well, I know they don't have the perspective of time, right? They they haven't had the, the life experiences that, and adults struggle with depression all the time, but, um, for them, it, it's immediate, and they, they can't see past tomorrow or the next year or past college or into their adult life. And we need to, we need to change that conversation with them. Kari, what was your level of awareness of your son's depression? Oh, I don't know how long. Very low, unfortunately. Robbie never told us that he wasn't happy. He was the kid that woke up every morning with a smile on his face. Mm. He's, he was always a part of our daily interactions. He was not behind closed doors. His friends, he was snapping until the very last minute, happy things. I think this is what is so difficult it is. for those uh, around those um, who kill themselves, which is you rack your brain for what sign you might have seen. What 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 might you have seen that triggers the kinds of conversations that you want families to have? And yet in your own case, those signs were not obvious. So is it about raising the conversation, starting the conversation, even if you see no signs? I think that's exactly it. Oh. it I mean, we are living examples of um, why, even if you think nothing is wrong why you need to have that conversation it you cannot assume that just because your children are happy or everything's going okay that everything really is okay we are we're proof of that 
Do you have some thoughts about why we have seen in Colorado um, such a high suicide rate among young people? Have you given this thought? And I think we have given it thought, but mm-hmm. I think we are approaching this. We're not experts. We're just parents. We've gone through an incredible amount of tragedy. We want to make a difference in Colorado. Um, the numbers are staggering. They're going up really fast. The data, we're about two years behind. I hate to see what 2018 looks like, but we want to change it moving forward. And if we don't get to involved as a community, and I really think the kids have a lot of solutions, um, and we're just the vehicle to get those solutions out as adults. With an obituary as a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Thank you for helping us understand that decision and for coming on to talk to us so soon after this. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Kari and Jason Eckert's son Robbie took his own life just last month. They decided to acknowledge his suicide in his obituary to raise awareness. And if you or someone you know is dealing with depression, again, we've linked to resources at CPR.org, as this family did in that obituary. A Denver Broncos rookie made history 50 years ago. In 1968, Marlon Briscoe became the first African-American starting quarterback in modern American pro football. Briscoe set records that season that still stand. But the next year, against the backdrop of race, he was off the team. Marlon Briscoe joins me from Irvine, California. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. You had to fight for your chance to play quarterback in the pros. Even though you had played quarterback through high school and at the University of Nebraska, the Broncos put you at defensive back. What was your response to that choice? Well, first of all, I started when I was Pop Warner. So I've been craving that position for a long time, since I was 10 years old. Hmm. When I got drafted uh, out of college in the 14th round by the Broncos, they, of course, drafted me as a defensive back. Uh, That's what they did to black quarterbacks who, if they did make it to the uh, collegiate level uh, playing quarterback, that's what they did. They said that, you know, you're a great athlete, so you can play other positions. What do you think their reasoning was? Well, because they didn't think a black man could think, throw, and lead on that level. I had a stellar career in college as a quarterback. I made All-American Recently, a couple of years ago, I made the Collegiate Hall of Fame, and I negotiated my own contract, and in those negotiations, you know, I told the Bronco Brass that I would play defensive back, but they had to give me a three-day trial at quarterback. They thought I was crazy. (laughs) How is a 14th-round draft choice when it's only 17 rounds going to dictate, you know, the conditions of a uh, a contract. I said, well, you know, that's what I'm going to do. If, if if I can't get that three-day trial, I was going to go ahead and teach school. All I wanted was a forum to showcase my skills. I never thought that I was going to get, you know, a level playing field, but they acquiesced to my so-called demands. Where did you get the, the confidence to ask for those three days? 
Well, you know, first of all, you know, we're talking about the 60s where black America had different approach to life and, and self-esteem. We as African Americans wanted to be heard, especially 1968. 1968 was one of the most pivotal years of change in the history of this country, if not the world. And so it was seemed like appropriate time <laughs> that somebody stood up. And let me just say a bit more about 1968. Of course, that's the year the Civil Rights Act was passed. It's also the year Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So is Robert F. Kennedy. And at the Olympics, two African-American athletes drew criticism for raising a fist on the medal stand during the national anthem. Uh, but to advance your story, you made history when you started for the Broncos at home on October 6th, 1968. But that was not the first time you took a snap for them. Uh, that came the week before against the Boston Patriots. Ten minutes left in the game, the Broncos are behind, and the starting quarterback gets injured. The coach calls your name. What was it like to walk into that game? Well, I've always been a quarterback and not a black quarterback. So uh, other people, including my players, probably were more nervous than I was. Here, I just assumed a position that I've always assumed, and that was the leader. And uh, I went out there with the idea, hey, complete that first pass and let's play ball. And so the first pass that I threw, I uh, made sure that I completed it. Was, I, I know it to this day. It was a slant to Eric Crabtree, gained 22 yards, and we were up and running. Huh. You know, we went down, scored, got the ball again, went down, and uh, we almost really pulled the game out. After your debut against the Patriots, the Broncos announced that you'd start as quarterback the next week against Cincinnati at the newly renamed Mile High Stadium in Denver. What do you remember about taking the field on that day? Well, it wasn't symbolic to me. It was something that I had always done. I was a quarterback, not a black quarterback, a quarterback. So I never really realized the impact that that day would have until Ebony Magazine uh, did this four-page spread on me. And I realized then the importance, not only for black America, but for white America as well. I tell you, that day was also historic because the first black center, Walter Highsmith, played at center that day. And he was the first black center to play in the NFL, and he and I were a duo out there. Nobody really realized it because everything was revolved around my starting uh, huh. that day. But he, Walt started that day as well. He he was with the Broncos? Yeah. What was the reaction from fans that day at Mile High? Well, they were very, very supportive. See, that was one of the fan backlash was one of the fears of management and, you know, naysayers that if a black man was playing quarterback, that the fans wouldn't show up for the games. i tell you what, Denver fans backed me wholeheartedly. And, you know, with those fans showing up week by week by week, you know, that was a tribute to Denver at, at, at that particular time. I don't know if I would have been able to pull it off uh, in any other city. I don't know. And then you have to look at another thing, like the players on the team. 
my entire line, beside Walt Highsmith that particular day, my entire line were white players from the South, except Mike Hearn. He was from Ohio State. They were from Mississippi, uh, LSU, uh, Alabama, and not only had they not played with or for a black quarterback, when they were in college until they got to the pros, they never played with a black player. Wow. And so... But, but you, you that, had their you know, respect. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, and that's what sports does. I suppose that's what sports does in the best of all possible worlds. It's it's not exactly. autom- it's not automatic, I suppose. It, it's interesting. You've said that you're not a black quarterback. You're a quarterback. And my understanding is that, that fans who came to see you didn't come to see the black guy. They came to see the little guy. Exactly. <laughs> you, you were exactly five ten and about one hundred seventy seven pounds, so not the biggest player by any means. Well, I was six three two ten on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Marlon Briscoe. He was the first black player to start at quarterback in what's now the National Football League, and he did that fifty years ago with the Denver Broncos. You had a great season. You threw for 335 yards in one game, a rookie record that stood until broken by John Elway. Uh, you even rushed for 308 yards. And yet when Broncos head coach Lou Saban started planning for the next year, he didn't want you as quarterback. How did you find out? Well, I, I had lacked six hours from graduating. So I decided to go back and, and, and get my degree back in Omaha. Then I get a phone call from my cousin telling me that they were having quarterback meetings with, and why wasn't I there. And so uh, I finished up my uh, requirements to get my degree, surreptitiously went to the Broncos headquarters, walked in the front door and, and sat down and waited for them to come out of their office, uh, the three of them and the, and the quarterback coach. They walked out of the room and looked at, they couldn't even look at me in, in the eye. And do you think all this is because you were black? Absolutely. You know, fan reaction, player reaction, you know, no, none of those neg- negative things played out. So they couldn't use those as an excuse. You left the Broncos to play for Buffalo and later for the Miami Dolphins, won two Super Bowls, but you never played quarterback again. And I wonder if that was painful for you. Oh, absolutely. I, I was runner-up for rookie of the year. And not only did I have Bronco records, I still have NFL record. I was the only player in the history of the NFL that started at four different positions. I was also the first black holder of extra points and field goals in the history of the NFL. I also have 18.2 yards per completion, which is still in the in the archives of the NFL. So I had a Hall of Fame career, if you, if you, if you think about it. But, you know, not to be able to uh, fulfill that, ate at me probably through my life, just like it, it has other black quarterbacks like Jefferson Street Joe and, and James Harris, guys that never got an opportunity to compete uh, on, on the same level playing field as, quite frankly, white quarter, white quarterbacks. 
I think of civil rights and football is still really connected. I mean, today there's controversy around football players kneeling during the national anthem, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts about that, Marlon. Well, Colin Kaepernick, he, he did what he did with dignity and grace. His M.O., his reasoning for kneeling and, and whatever was no disrespect to the, the flag of the United States. It was an open protest about conditions as it relates to black men and the police in this country. And I've been, trust me, I've had a reason to understand how that works because I've had, you know, in my lifetime as a black man with the, the white police establishment, they raised their ugly head. You know, the kid can play. Hey, he took him to the Super Bowl. And yet, you know, he's not going to get any takers because that's, he became a political, excuse, of, <laughs> excuse the uh, pun, he, he became a political football. <laughs> and the kid should get an opportunity to play the game that he loves and can still play. Marlon, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, enjoyed it. Go Broncos. Marlon Briscoe became the first African-American starting quarterback in modern pro football when he took the field at Mile High for the Denver Broncos. That was in October 1968. And as we said, 68 was a pivotal year. Half a century later, we've been hearing music from that era, asking Colorado artists to cover their favorite songs from back then. For Denver bluesman Chris Daniels, the soul hit Who's Making Love stands out. The track from Johnny Taylor reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the R&B charts. Daniels himself recorded the song in 08 with his band The Kings. All you fellas gather around me Let me give you some good advice Cause what I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you You better think Think about it twice While you're out on a good woman There's something that you never dreamed about Who's making love to your old lady While you was out making love Who's making love to your old lady While you was out making love I know there are so many fellas Chris Daniels and the Kings performing Who's Making Love, the 1968 soul hit from Johnny Taylor. All right, still to come, there is such a thing as a popular tax. It's one that pays for arts and culture in Metro Denver, and voters have kept it going for 30 years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Be the same way. I finally started to straighten. 
the midterm elections have come and gone. And in Colorado, it was a blue avalanche, one so strong that you could wonder if this is even a purple state anymore. I disagree. I think we're still going to be purple. To be honest, it's a blunt comment, a very direct comment on the Trump presidency. I'm Sam Brash, and for this final week of our election series, Purplish, White Democrats dominated Colorado, and what that says about the future of the state. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If you don't know it by its name, you may know it by its mascot, a polar bear named Popsicle. I'm talking about the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, SCFD. It funds hundreds of nonprofits across Metro Denver, from big institutions like the Denver Zoo and Art Museum to smaller ones like the Arapaho Philharmonic and a Veterans Museum in Broomfield. Well, 30 years ago this month, voters in seven counties agreed to tax themselves so their communities would have more art and culture. Here's one of the TV ads that tried to sway those voters in 88. Remember what it was like when you were a kid? Things like going to a museum made your day, your whole week even. But it could be different for our kids. If we don't get more funding for cultural facilities... I'm sorry, son. This section's closed. Vote yes on Proposition 9. Voters have renewed the sales and use tax multiple times. And today we're going to look back and ahead with Denver pollster Floyd Cerulli, who worked on the initial and subsequent campaigns. Floyd, nice to see you. Good to be here. And SCFD Executive Director Deborah Jordy. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. I know that SCFD isn't as literal as paying for a painting or giraffe feed, uh, but would you mind naming, I don't know, a work of art or a scientific project that you think illustrates what folks in Metro Denver have gotten for their money, big or small? They've gotten collaborations. There's an exhibition on right now at Museo de las Americas. It's a collaboration between the Museum of Nature and Science and Lockheed Martin, a for-profit, and the museo on showing these beautiful examples of an ancient Aztec codex compared and contrasted with images from Lockheed from outer space. So here you have this richness of texture and culture and science and art all rolled up into one. And it's just been recently cited that, for example, getting the Van Gogh and getting Chihuly out at the Botanic Gardens and even getting uh, things that are sort of popular culture like Star Wars costumes. That that was at the Denver Art Museum. You got it. And Van Gogh, which had people in line. That, I think, is a product uh, of this uh, 30-year investment that the public has made in our cultural community. It's so interesting because Denver was experiencing a recession in the mid-'80s. The city's major cultural organizations were struggling at that time. Here's then-Mayor Federico Peña talking to Rocky Mountain PBS. Our unemployment rate was 2% above the national average. Uh, We had record bankruptcies of companies, record foreclosures, property values plummeted. And in one year, Colorado lost population. It's around this time that some trustees of the Denver Art Museum start brainstorming for the ways... The museum, the zoo, would not go under, essentially. What was the predicament? How dire was it, Floyd? 
There was a recession, as you mentioned, but they also had lost uh, some funding that they had from the state. Uh, So at that point, they began closing floors. They began reducing hours. Exhibits uh, were limited. And at the zoo, uh, they uh, felt because they have such an ongoing expense to take care of the animals, they really were very worried. I was a curator at the time at the art museum. And when we had to start instituting fees for exhibitions, Attendance went down, and literally you could hear a bowling ball roll through the galleries, and it was serious. Hopefully not literally. Not literally. No no one was rolling bowling not balls. Literally. It could have been a contemporary <laughs> art piece, but you never know, but no. So, Floyd, where do they turn to inspiration to, to sort of get out of this predicament? One example that they looked at was St. Louis. Uh, while it's different than what they ultimately adopted, uh, St. Louis had, for their major cultural institutions, about three of them, uh, come up with a property tax. And it was beginning to provide, at that point, uh, some steady income. But clearly, a sales tax made more sense here. That- well, why did a sales tax clearly make more sense? There are some who think, even today, that that's regressive, right? Like, poor people pay that as much as rich people pay that. Well, it's probably less regressive here than other places because we exempt food and and, uh, some other items. But generally speaking, it is so small, a tenth of a cent, that we really didn't get very much complaints about that. Deborah, how common is it for other communities to have a tax like this? It's very unusual for other communities to have a tax like this. There's a tax in St. Louis, as Floyd mentioned, in Salt Lake City, and in Cleveland. Cleveland is a cigarette tax, so obviously sales are going down, which is a good thing. For everyone's health, but it's a bad thing for the arts. So this taxing district gets on the 88 ballot. I think of how poorly statewide tax proposals did in just this last election. And yet there you all were 30 years ago during a recession asking voters to approve a tax for culture. What the heck is your strategy, Floyd, in that environment? Well, we had been warned by, say, for example, county commissioners and all that we, while they personally loved the zoo and the Natural History Museum, that they didn't think their voters would give money to Denver. And at least one of the strategies was to make it quite clear the money went directly to the institutions. It didn't go through a particular city, in this case, Denver. We kept the administration really frugal, and that was rather new. But we said that it had to, it couldn't spend over more than 1% of the overall money on administrating it. In other words, Does that ideal, remain true today? It's now 1.5. 1.5. But it's still, believe me, that's Mm. that's record low. And then finally, we emphasized the public access. So they emphasized free days, discounts for uh, all school children. And they also, uh, at that point, began focusing even more on the suburbs and interacting with them. It Um, passed with 75% of the votes. In all, at that time, six counties. And while we had advertising for this, I think it was primarily the institutions. Because one of the things I do, as you mentioned, is poll. And these institutions, these major institutions are so popular. They're so favored. Uh, The zoo, the Natural History Museum, the Art Museum, and and now even more, uh, that they test well above our sports organizations here. The the Broncos and the Nuggets. Absolutely. Wait, you're telling me the zoo beats out the Broncos in popularity? Overwhelmingly. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I would have never guessed. Uh, What's the closest it ever came to failing? 
our toughest year was uh, sort of less about the district and more about the environment. It was in 1994. And if you remember, in 92, we had passed Tabor here. So we were in a very sort of anti-tax mood. There had been a statewide tax for tourism in, in 93 on the ballot. It lost and it had been uh, previously approved. The Tabor, uh, of course, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, one of the more limited uh, the in the country. The country's most severe tax uh-huh. limitation initiative. But 94 was also the year that Republicans took the House of Representatives. Newt Gingrich became the speaker and we were in a very angry mood just in general, uh, nationally, and we were pretty uh, frugal here. Towards, we, towards we, government, towards got taxation. absolutely taxes mm-hmm. and government. Yet it still passed by 57 percent and we thought that was fabulously positive. Deborah, speak to the person who doesn't think public funds should go to the arts, that, that that's the realm of donors, names like Betcher, Carnegie on libraries, you know, that there was there was any number of wealthy families who were going to make the arts happen. There are certainly individuals of wealth and families in the community, corporations that support the arts. But the SCFD provides money to create an environment where we punch way above our weight of a city our size, of a community our size. Sometimes criticism of the SCFD has come from within the arts community. The issue of distribution of funds has been a debate really from the start. Deborah, I understand in the not-too-distant future, there's going to be a fund launched to increase diversity and inclusivity. What's your dream with it? It's going to be about building capacity for small organizations, especially underrepresented communities. So whether it's a dance company or a slam poet, we're going to see really interesting projects come up. It could be a project community based on immigrant issues in Aurora. It could be based in a more rural area in Deer Trail, thinking about education as it relates to an agricultural community. All right. We have to wrap up with a very important question. Will a polar bear still be the face of SCFD, given that the Denver Zoo's polar bears are saying goodbye? We'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens to Popsicle. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks. Deborah Jordy is executive director of the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, which celebrates 30 years this month. And Floyd Cerulli is a Denver pollster who has helped campaign for the arts and culture tax. Supporters of Prop 112, the oil and gas setbacks measure, may have failed to convince voters it was right for Colorado in the last election, but they're not giving up. They are regrouping, figuring out what democratic control of state government could mean for their cause. CPR's energy and environment reporter Grace Hood explains what's next for those who want to limit fracking. On election night, incoming Democratic Speaker of the House Casey Becker listed oil and gas as a key priority for her party. As wells move closer to homes, some residents complain they don't see any checks on an industry they say threatens their health and safety and contributes to climate change. We really need to put the oil and gas wars to bed. The oil industry poured millions into defeating Proposition 112. Through TV ads and mailers, they argued that there was too much at stake. 29,000 jobs hung in the balance. I think we can find a compromise that will keep communities feeling safer without putting the oil and gas industry out of business. Right now, it's too early to tell what compromise will look like. But potential legislation is a ray of hope for environmentalists 
who seemed out of avenues for change. The Colorado Supreme Court has struck down city-level efforts to ban fracking. That's why activists made their appeal directly to voters with the statewide ballot measure. And Lee Foster is with the environmental group Colorado Rising behind Prop 112. The industry spent $40 million against our $1 million. Going forward, Foster says she'd like to see the state legislature take up bigger setbacks between new wells and homes. It's also something the environmental group Conservation Colorado says it will support. And Foster says Colorado Rising won't rule out another statewide ballot issue for 2020. The loss has actually solidified and deepened the conviction of the community to really make something happen and and make some real change here. In 2018, lawmakers produced small changes. A deadly Firestone explosion prompted bills that gave more funds to fix older orphan wells. State regulators also pushed change. But those actions didn't go far enough for Colorado Rising. They hope for more from a Democratic-controlled state legislature. It includes new lawmakers like Jaquez Lewis. There are so many newly elected and incumbents that want to take a look at this as a team approach. They'll do it without fracking's most strident opponents, who aren't in office anymore, like former Senator Matt Jones. He's moving on to become a Boulder County commissioner. He says there's still time to resurrect a bill he failed to pass. The idea is for... Local governments, like any other land use, have the ability to plan, zone, and deny permits. There are big roadblocks, though. Oil companies have successfully argued in court that production rights are protected in state law. It sees permit rejections as lost revenue, and that could impact jobs. In the past, the industry has used lobbying power to push back against significant change. That's something that will not go away with Democratic control, says Jones, the Boulder commissioner. It's a lot of money. And they're willing to spend a bunch of money because they're making a bunch of money. And our priority should be protecting people, not corporate profits. Industry power is one reason Ann Lee Foster and Colorado Rising are worried about the 2019 session. I think we definitely want to keep a close eye on the legislature. Um, We want to participate in that, but we also don't bank a lot of hope there. And we will continue to organize in, in other ways including plotting a direct appeal to voters again in 2020 to get cities more control over oil and gas development. Foster and Colorado Rising will meet soon to plan their ideas. And newly elected state Democrats plan to bring their proposed legislation into sharper focus at the end of this year. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Imagine a school where everything from the architecture to classroom activities is grounded in neuroscience, a place where the latest brain science translates into what happens in the classroom. Well, that school exists. It's in Erie, Colorado. And CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine takes us into this new Soaring Heights school. Over the past few years, Principal Cyrus Weinberger thought a lot about everything he wanted in a school. I began to think about The hard sciences like biology, physiology. And then I started to think about computer science in terms of coding, robotics, movement, empathy for others, service. 
He wondered what it would be like to have a school that combined these things under one unifying concept. I realized there was a name for that, and it was called neuroscience. Kids at Soaring Heights learn all the content other kids do. But this STEM-focused school also uses principles of neuroscience to help students persevere, concentrate, regulate their emotions, and even develop empathy. Around the building, we have a lot of exercise bikes so that kids, if they need to take a break or they want to work and ride a bike at the same time, they can do that. And there's a ton of research that correlates physical activity with brain development, attention, focus, attendance, viewer behavior issues. We stand in a cavernous open room looking down at kids eating lunch below. Natural light streams in from towering windows. Long's Peak is in full view in the distance. Distance. Classroom ceilings are high, furniture is modern, there are wobble stools and standing desks. There's cushions and couches. This is just so radically different from most schools I go into. Teaching kids how the brain works is central to the school's philosophy. Neuroscientists from Anschutz Medical Center created experiments to sprinkle throughout the curriculum. Several teach kids about the brain's plasticity. Sukumar Vijaraguan is director of Anschutz's neuroscience graduate program. One example, try throwing a ball into a basket. Then put on prism goggles and you start throwing the ball at an angle. But what you also learn is that while you keep doing that, the brain will adapt and and actually get you to the right place after a few trials. So this kind of idea that the brain is plastic and the brain can be trained to do stuff. When kids see that the brain can change and adapt, that can be applied to learning challenges. Kids in this classroom see how a brain wave controls the body. Therefore, stealing from that electrical impulse and transferring it over to Mr. Weinberger. It's a pretty cool experiment involving their principal, Mr. Weinberger. He's hooked up to a machine. His arm automatically moves when the teacher standing next to him thinks about and moves her arm. Does it hurt you? No, it doesn't hurt. It feels really funny, but it doesn't. Kids are wowed and discuss real-world applications. In another classroom, it's going higher. students are about to study how breathing and other sensory inputs affect the way the body responds to stress. A boy donning virtual reality glasses is in the midst of a harrowing roller coaster ride. Kids cluster around him, iPads in hand, measuring their classmates' EKG before, during, and after. Logan Nod sees that virtual reality it messes with your nervous system. Principal Weinberger believes understanding why and how others react is also the first step towards building empathy. Innovation teacher Anna Mills recalls in one lesson, kids interviewed each other about what they find stressful. A big one was not having anyone to sit with at lunch or play with during recess. And then their prototype that they came up with was a sensory buddy bench. A bench that had all kinds of sensory stress reducers like lavender to smell, calming music. Students can build some of their design challenges during daily innovation time. For 7th grader Wesley Green, not being trapped behind a desk is a relief to both body and mind. A lot of kids these days like to learn either digitally or they like to move around when they learn. So they like to do things more physically, like hands-on. In two big makerspaces, kids can glue and paint and saw, use 3D printers or a laser cutter. Principal Weinberger envisions students using the school's 360 cameras to see the world from another's point of view. 
what is it like to be short or tall, for example, or what it might be like not to have a friend at recess. Neuroscience graduate student Jackie Essig says the ultimate goal of incorporating neuroscience into school is getting kids to think outside the box. Not just absorb information, but to take that information and do something new with it. She and Professor Vijay Raghwan admit visiting Soaring Heights makes them kind of jealous, almost wishing they were back in grade school. Jenny Brandine, CPR News. Finally today, we're taping our third annual holiday extravaganza later this month in a big theater in Denver. And this year, we held a contest for a chance to perform on stage. We heard from lots of Colorado musicians, and we'll announce the winner Friday. Until then, we're sharing some of the other standout entries. This one comes from the Downey sisters, Kate, Ella, and Meg of Denver, who gathered around a keyboard for a holiday mashup. The Downey Sisters of Denver with a holiday mashup will announce the winner of our contest Friday. And you can get tickets to the big event. It tapes November 28th at the Newman Center in Denver. Just head to CPR.org for tickets. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.